I don't know the words that one. Okay, ready? Nope. I'll, I'll pick. Oh, okay. The boss isn't here yet. Jesus declares that on occasion, a storm will come that tests whether our practices are built on a rock or upon the sand. As we find ourselves in the midst of a storm, we unpack five shifts the church must make to ensure our foundation is on the rock. The day is finally here. Season two of the Disciples Made podcast. Rob, you're not hey, buddy. six feet from me. You're more than six feet. Yes, I'm in my, uh, my garage, which is, as you know, a very special place. It I've is. got a sectional in here. I've got a lazy boy. I've got What's two meters. <laughs> Rob. Rob. <laughs> you got a lazy boy. Another couch. Yeah, I got my weights you. in here to work out. I got my cigar uh, paraphernalia. Gotcha. Some old Thompson's artwork. See, I'm, everyone's listening right now is like, man, I want to get in there. There's ambient lighting. It's a great place to be. Awesome. I'm in my now office. Now it's a podcast for you. Yeah. We like being together, but there's this pandemic yes it's gross yes, there is that's no yeah, joke we've had uh sean and i are uh in quarantine because we had direct contact with some dear family microchurch family who have been uh tested positive for covid so praying for Lori and trent and then the rest of us are getting tested because we did a social distance uh dbs time last wednesday on the driveway so hopefully the social distance and the outdoor air circulation will have been sufficient but uh until we get the test results back we're trying to play it safe so i told brian i don't want to kill you i like you i don't I love you <laughs> <laughs> i don't want to be sick and i don't want to contaminate anyone else and man uh, we like having super high quality audio and all that stuff, which we normally have, but we are going to do the right thing with this COVID thing. And that leads us right into the topic that we've told you about for this season two, five shifts that a COVID-19 world requires, five shifts in church leadership. I want to share a couple of verses here just at the outset to set a framework up for this whole thing. And the first verse comes from Matthew chapter 7, verses 24 to 27. It says, Everyone who hears these words of mine, this is Jesus teaching at the very end of the Sermon on the Mount. So he's kind of laid out what kingdom life looks like. And then he says, Everybody who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice, that's an important word we'll come back to, come and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against the house, yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice, there's that word practice again, it's like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against the house, and it fell with a great crash. We're all very familiar with that story. The, the practice word is the word we want to focus on. Matthew 16, 18 is the next verse. On this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. Here's the takeaway we want you to kind of catch all the way through this series. Jesus declares that on occasion a storm will come that mm -hmm. tests whether our practices are built on a rock or upon the sand. Mm. COVID-19 is the latest of these storms. 
And what we're going to do is we're going to unpack what we believe are five shifts that we must make in this season to ensure that our, our practices are built on the teachings of Jesus. Our practices are built on the teachings of Jesus because what he's saying is that as we build our practices upon him, as our practices follow his practices, not only is the gospel a sure thing that can't take our house down, but not just his message, Rob, we say this a lot, we use his methods as well as his message. And so those practices are what we are going to evaluate during this time. Our, our belief is another storm's coming, that this is just a storm. Now, Rob, this is the question I want to use. We're going to be using this question with all of our guests, so we need to actually answer it at the very beginning. Andrew Crouch has, has posed a question early on in the COVID deal, saying is, you know, basically, is COVID-19 just a snowstorm, like a one-off event? Is it a winter season that is kind of, you know, a few months long, depending on where you live? Or is this an ice age for the church? So how would you answer that? And I'll answer it as well. And then, and then why do you answer it that way? Uh, first of all, I'm just so grateful for the reliability of Jesus. He's so honest with us as well. He makes it really clear. There isn't an address where the storm doesn't hit. That's good. Uh, and being a follower of Jesus doesn't mean you get, uh, you know, avoid the storm pass. Hmm. Uh, the rain falls on the just and the unjust. And there's a, there's a certain version of Christianity that is very, very popular. That it's like Christianity is an evac out of suffering, pain, difficulty. And it is a lie. That is not what Jesus taught. <laughs> or modeled. And no. He, his name is Emmanuel. He is God with us. And best of all, God is with us. And we can have Jesus' presence, his power, and his practices. We're not left not knowing what to do uh he he came and lived among us and still does through his spirit and i just want to remember that i'm just so it's so important to return to that again and again because we are we're off the map we, we we don't know what we're doing right now um none of us have ever been in this situation before um, but jesus is not panicked uh, he's not scratching his head he knows exactly what to do and when to do it and I'm working through, you know, Advent and uh, the reading plan, the psalm for this week is Psalm 127. And it, and it says, those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion, which cannot be shaken, but endures forever. Oh, Talk about a rock. <laughs> I don't feel that. I don't feel that, especially right now if you're really tired. I'm like, but Jesus says, hey, in me, you're Mount Zion. That's crazy. It, it's that's about identity. He's like in me, you're Mount Zion. So just who's ever listening in Jesus today, you're Mount Zion, and uh, and his solidity, his foundation endures forever. You can rely on him. So back to the question. Um, you know, I grew up on the South Side of Chicago, and then moved to South Bend, and uh, it's affectionately called the Snow Belt. And the Rust Belt. Because <laughs> we get lake effect snow, which means you get six, seven, eight feet of snow coming off that lake. And so I grew up with long, deep winters. And I remember some of the blizzards, like the blizzard of 77 or 78, the snow literally went all the way up to the roof. Like oh you couldn't open goodness. the 
you couldn't open the kitchen door. <laughs> I've never experienced anything like that. Like maybe three feet. Uh, <laughs> and as a kid, it was so exciting. I was just like, yes, this is going to be amazing. You know, and wait, when you live in places like that, you know what you learn? You can actually have fun all year long. Like a snowstorm is not a death knell. And now it is. Things die. But really, they're just going to sleep. And there's some things that are invisible beneath the surface. And, and if you have the right gear, you can go outside and and have more fun and a different type of adventure than you can have any other time of the year. And I and I I don't want to make light of what we're going through, but I think that analogy still holds. It it is definitely not a snowstorm. It's it's definitely a winter season. But I think it's going to have some ice age effects. So it is going to let up. It's going to stop. The vaccine's rolling out. They got six. They're going to keep rolling out in sequence every couple of weeks. I heard yesterday, you know, from uh, one of the SARS, you know, on the response to this tragedy saying, hey, now it's looking like we may have enough shots coming in where everybody can go CVS in March and get this. So it may not even go all the way to May in terms of the vaccinations and all that. Now, who knows, right? But um, supply lines may break down and all that. But uh, things are going to return to somewhat more of normalcy. We're not going to all be wearing masks forever. We're not going to have to quarantine like we are right now forever. That's that's going away. I'm super thankful. But But there are going to be some lasting effects. And if we learn to kind of put on the right gear <laughs> and, and accept that it's winter and, and stop trying to demand that it's summer, we can actually take advantage of some of these lasting trends. You know, so for example, lasting trends, people who have experienced church, you know, primarily as an event where they get to enjoy a meaningful message. Um, hopefully, you know, a worship experience that's personal and meaningful, a sense, a little sense of like connection to a larger community. The trends that were happening before COVID were super accelerated by COVID. Like we're, we're moving into a deeper state of post-Christian America. And so, you know, all the estimates or whatever, 30% or so have not connected at all, like with any streaming or anything. Another significant portion, you know, when services opened up, another 30 40 percent are saying, I'm not coming. You know, I, and it could be for various reasons. Some of it's fear, but you know what? Some of it isn't fear. It's like, this is more convenient. And so I think churches are going to have to recognize, like, again, the weekend service being the catalytic engine for everything. And that's our main play. That has changed, I think, forever. The efficacy of that has been radically diminished, and I don't think it's going back. Now, there will be a few exceptions here or there, but by and large, and, and those exceptions are more like Walmart putting the mom and pops out of business. I don't think they're actually a windfall of like new customers who've never <laughs> been to the church store before. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's just like, hey, I'm going to go over to X church because it's kind of better, and it's, you know, so that's, that's one lasting trend that I think churches are going to have to wrestle with. And another one um, is I think it's revealed the fragility of our current systems 
when it comes to empowering God's people to be all that they can be, to get to their maximum influence. Um, I've talked to, I don't know, literally thousands of church leaders this year who said, man, our small groups were not what we thought they were. <laughs> right. You know, or our, our, you know, fill in the blank. Our blank was not what we thought it was. Our discipleship pathway basically disappeared overnight. And we realized it's not a very good discipleship pathway if it can disappear overnight. Like the church didn't, their discipleship pathway never disappeared in the New Testament. <laughs> like no matter what went down, if people were getting martyred, if people were getting stoned, you know. And so I think church leaders have to, they have an opportunity to rethink this thing and in, in deeply and go, okay, how do, how do we build something that transcends pandemics? Because that's actually what Jesus built. He said, if the storm comes and it falls apart, you didn't build it on what I'm doing because what I'm doing doesn't fall apart. So I, I, it's a severe storm with some, I think, permanent lasting effects. Um, that's my thoughts, man. How about you? Mine is very similar. Uh, I've, I netted out a little bit, but I think I pretty much say the same thing. I agree with you that I think it's only a winter season, but it's also an invitation to make those shifts. You know, I think if we don't make these shifts that this season requires, the five shifts that we're going to be walking through, we're not going to be prepared for um, either another winter storm that might be worse or a coming ice age. To me, it's kind of like this is, this is the, the shot across the bow to say something's coming. Yeah, wake up. Wake up. I mean, it's interesting to me, Rob. We, we started to make all of these shifts in the church that we were both serving at, and, and they were going well. It's like we were able to engage both because the storm hadn't hit yet. But we both had an inkling that uh, one way or another, an ice age was coming. Uh, for the church that would not enable us to do business as usual. And that was what catalyzed us to move kind of out of the role that we were in to really try to push and innovate, not just our own church, but to push and to, um, you know, coach and challenge and encourage uh, churches, as many churches as we possibly can with this ministry called Disciples Made and, and the one that you lead, Kansas City Underground, to be prepared and we thought it was an ice age that was coming, you know, probably 15 to 20 years. I kind of felt that it was still out there. And then this COVID thing came and said, okay, here's a taste, like the appetizer before the entree of something coming. So this wasn't a question that we started asking as COVID hit. This was an ice age that I personally felt was coming, you know, three or four years ago. Oh, which, man. I, I remember reading, um, there's a couple books that I read back in like the late nineties, early two thousands. One was called the fourth turning. And that one's just by a couple of futurists slash historians that uh, were writing about the cycles um, in, in American history. And they were talking about, we're coming into what's called the fourth turning, which is going to be like a 20 to 30 year period of chaos. Right? So I read that in probably 99 or 2000, 2001, 9-11 happens, right? And then you think about 2000 to 2020, think about the amount of disruption that's happened. And, and, and then ask yourself, is that slowing down? Yeah, no. Or is it increasing? And just anyone who's listening to this, just be honest with yourself. Like, is that slowing down or is it increasing, right? And so we can't ignore that. We can't put our head in the sand. We can't. And then I remember reading this uh, book by Len Sweet, 
soul tsunami. And his analogy is this is a tsunami. Like it's going to roll in. It's going to change the entire landscape. And then it's going to roll out. And it's an opportunity to rebuild. You know, and, and there's, believe it or not, through the power of the Holy Spirit, we could actually ride the tsunami. Like there'd be some people who they're ready for the wave. And rather than getting everything knocked down, it actually accelerates what they're doing in a supernatural way. And that, that book was, I remember uh, I was like an evangelist. I, our whole staff basically ended up reading it. And I'm like, we got to read this book. I think he's right. And at the time, though, it didn't, it seemed like a little bit like chicken little. Sky's falling. Sky's right. falling. You right. Know? And we might sound like that to some people. Who knows? You know, but yeah. uh, we're coming from the center of our hearts. I read a book in seminary uh, about the same time. It was actually early 90s, early to mid 90s. Uh, the Once and Future Church by Lauren Mead, hmm. and uh, basically talked about how just the the centralization of the church, you know, the hierarchies of denominations and all the resources that they have to carry out these more centralized uh, ministry directives is going to crumble just because the resourcing is going to go down because of the culture change. And so it's been really ominous. You know, I read that book way back then when none of this was threatened, and uh, that was only 25 years ago. And now um, we're seeing some of that come to light. And I don't know about you, Rob, but, you know, if you think somewhat generationally, like this is our generation. I'm, I'm 53. You're getting ready to enter into the 50s and start to move into that generation. There's people behind us 10 years that are in their early 40s and then 30s and, and 20s. And, you know, it's kind of our time to step up and carry the mantle. The folks, you know, that are 60 and 70 are starting to, uh, to wind down the giants that came before us. And it just seems to me like this is our time to make sure that the, that the gospel and the ministry and the best handoff possible goes to the next generation, the best handoff. And so we're inviting any and everyone that's uh, listening to this to say, you know, it's not just about my church. It's about the church in America. Amen. It's about the church around the world. We've got to hand the very best thing off to those as uh, I, the way I talk about it is I feel like I've just started the fourth quarter of my life and I want to give it, make it my best quarter yet. When I get toward the end of the game, like the two minute warning and beyond, I know that there's a whole generation of folks carrying something uh, powerful on end. So let's go on into the, the first uh, question here, the first shift. And the first shift really kind of goes back to that uh, book that Lauren Mead was talking about, The Once and Future Church, about moving from complex forms of church to simple forms of church. Now, some people, I don't know if this is, the book's been a while back, but there was a book out about uh, simple church, which is about taking a lot, you know, a lot of opportunities and making it more, uh, less opportunities. But we're not talking really so much about that as we are taking our ecclesiology, the way we come at the process of church and trying to go back more to a New Testament expression of church. So Rob and I are going to kind of take turns, kind of tossing a question back and forth at each other in this format. Uh, we don't know what the questions are going to be, but I get to go first. So uh, I get to take the <laughs> first uh, swab across. <laughs> All right. So Rob, here's question number one that Rob's not prepared for. At least he hadn't heard it. I know he's prepared for it. Rob, we put this series together and you came up with this first shift. So what do you mean by complex and what do you mean by simple? And why do we have to move from complex to simple? That's a softball, man. <laughs> it's a softball. 
Oh no, I hope I don't swing and miss now that you said it's a lob. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think complex forms of church, it is the water that we've all swam in that um, for for much of my life, I never even questioned. You know, you just, when you grow up in something, you kind of assume, well, this is what it is and this is what it's always been and and how do we make this particular way of being the church better, smarter, faster, stronger? I began to see within that complex form of church, and here's what I mean by that. You know, in the New Testament, the church didn't own buildings. Virtually every church in America that's registered with the government owns a building, you know. Uh, in, in the New Testament, the church per se had uh, no programs. There wasn't like, hey, we have a women's ministry and a men's ministry and a youth ministry, and then we've got, I mean, fill in the blank. Like the average church in America, that's mostly what they try to become a platform for. How many effective programs can we create? And there's a beautiful heart behind it. It's like we want people to meet Jesus and know Jesus, uh, but we have a building. Uh, we offer the best programming that we can. You know, in, in the New Testament, the church was a very flat structure. In the church in America today, it's a very complex hierarchical structure. Uh, depending what denomination you're in, I mean, there's so many levels and so many um, task force and committees and boards. And uh, it's, it's, it's almost like, you know, when you're fishing, you cast and it doesn't go right and you end up with a bird's nest. It's like, I, I couldn't untangle this thing if I wanted to. I, I don't know. I can't even really understand the structure. I couldn't even put it on a map. It's like, whoa, whoa, you know? And I've been in denominations like that where it's like, man, it's hard to wrap my head around who reports to who and why and wh how that committee has power over this thing that we're doing. I, I don't understand how this works, you know? Um, and you got to give a lot of time and energy to it. It's like, you have to go to these meetings and you have to vote and you have to, um, and if you don't, you're seen as a rogue. Well, that's just not, present in the new testament so there's these complex forms of church and it yeah there you can say well there was some voting it's like no they casted lots <laughs> like are, are you rolling dice at your meeting and i know they weren't rolling dice but you know what i'm saying it's like it's not what we what we do it, it doesn't look like that so a simple form of church um strips now i'm not saying all that's wrong i'm just saying it's extra biblical i'm not saying necessarily that it's incorrect I'm just saying it's Would it be not fair essential. to say that it's vulnerable. It's vulnerable, you know, where and if you think about complex things like if you know if you've ever been to like a car show and they show how uh this engine on this car purrs and they set up that like uh champagne glass pyramid, right? Like that thing is so fragile. Like you bump that car and it it'll fall down, right? Versus like if you have a rock. A rock is very simple. And it's actually really hard to break. And what we're saying is what Jesus gave the church as her inheritance is a very simple, durable, uh, and also, strangely enough, adaptable, transcendent uh, form. And, it, and fundamentally, it's, it's what I would call an extended spiritual family. Like the primary uh, analogy is that a family. And if you look at the New Testament, again, 
that the early church had a tendency and tendency is probably the best word because there's not much that's dogmatic in the early church. Um, but they had this, you know, massive gathering in the temple. Um, we don't know the exact numbers. Uh, we, we know there were moments where thousands responded, but we don't know if it was thousands every day or what. We just don't know. We don't have that much information. We know it could scale up to that and that the, that the disciples of Jesus were there every day. And then also in their homes. And what's interesting is by Acts chapter 8, you know, the large kind of social space, which a lot of times churches say is like our weekend services, which I, I feel like is not actually very honest or very thorough exegetical move. It, it's more like us taking something we're doing and projecting it on the passage instead of letting the passage speak for itself. But nonetheless, in Acts chapter 8, that larger space goes away. And what you have left then is this network of these households of faith. And then we get a, you know, we get a clearer picture after Acts chapter 8 of what's going on. Uh, because then you start to see this series of chain reactions where the gospel hits what was called an oikos or a network, you know, it tended to be 20 to 50 people connected by work, household slaves, close relations, all that. Um, so like in Acts 16 through 18, you see Lydia and her household and Crispus and his household and the jailer and his household. And basically what happens is those oikoses, like a missionary gets planted, like Paul and Silas, and then they plant the gospel and then it spreads like fire. And all of a sudden this oikos is a new group of disciples and it's a household of faith or what you could call a church, a micro church. And then as you watch the epistles unfold, you begin to see that networks of micro churches are emerging in cities, you know, like in Rome. And you go to chapter 16 and James Dunn, who's a leading New Testament scholar, says, well, there's at least five households of faith, maybe more. And that's what the church in Rome is. It's a network, a decentralized network of what we affectionately call microchurches. And then if you start reading the epistles through that lens, you suddenly realize like the microchurch actually makes sense of all these instructions that you're getting in the epistle. Like a lot of these, you can't do with 3000 in an hour on Sunday morning. It doesn't make any sense. You right. know what I mean? And even our small groups where it's like, we're getting people together from different social networks for an hour a week. It's like, you can't really do these very well. Like all the one another commands, whatever, 90 something of them. Like if you, if the church actually is an extended spiritual family doing life together around the mission of Jesus, it's like, man, we can live these flat out. And then like the worship instructions in first Corinthians 14, suddenly like, Oh, this makes sense. Like if you try to do this with thousands, it's going to be a circus, right? Right. It's going to be a free for all. But if I'm doing it with like my extended spiritual family in my living room or on my driveway, it's like, this could be glorious. Right. So let me go back, Rob, real quick, because I want to try to summarize what you said. You said, because uh, you made a claim, I want to make sure we go back and touch it, that um, that what we t when we say that our weekend gatherings are like what happened at the temple in Jerusalem, uh, you're saying that there's a, that we're kind of reading something into that. And I just want to clarify what I think it might be. Uh, I It seems to me that the temple gathering wasn't bring your seeker friends to come here, Peter and James and John. It was more, we're the microchurch leaders. We're the leaders in our homes. And we want to do this thing well. We want to come hear from you how to do that well. So it was basically equipping an equipping experience for the leaders of those different oikoses around the area is my assumption, right? 
Is that what you're saying? That that's probably what that was more like. And then the authority genuinely was in the Oikos, which because the family structure of authority was already lined up. We didn't have to create a new authority structure. It was already there. We just empowered the people in those positions of responsibility slash authority to carry out that uh, under Jesus tutelage. Yeah, I, I do think that's accurate. I, I think there were evangelistic moments, but it wasn't like, hey, we're having an evangelism seeker-friendly service every Sunday at nine. Invite your friends. Yeah, Peter it was a pre-existing. On <laughs> you're right, right. And it was a pre-existing religious structure. Like they had the offices. Like you, yeah. and if you look at the New Testament, pay attention to the times that they mention. Like the miracles happened when they were going to pray the offices. <laughs> like they're going into the temple gate, beautiful, and notice the time. It's like, well, it's right when you're supposed to show up for prayer. So. You know, they were basically engaging the traditional religious structures of prayer and so forth, which I, I love. I still practice those things. Like that has continued through church history, but they didn't start a new seeker service. No, uh, they were practicing their faith. And then there, the Solomon's Colonnade was a third space. Like it was a place you could go and hang. And it was a place where people who wanted to teach or throw out an idea in the marketplace could and the church started to own it <laughs> like we're taking over starbucks man i mean it's not starbucks that's a kind of a crass analogy but it's like hey here's a third space in this religious structure and god's given us this space as a platform for uh, equipping and i imagine what they did brian was they talked about jesus they talked about what jesus had done they passed on what Jesus had taught. And then they would have went to the Old Testament scriptures and say, do you guys see now how all of this points to Jesus? Like this Psalm is talking about Jesus, you know? And, and I think everybody who was in those spaces began to experience the presence of Jesus mediated through the teaching and the equipping. And that's what they're carrying back. Now it's like, oh, I learned this, you know, in the temple court today, we're going to talk about this in our household tonight over dinner. I love it. Hey, before uh, you uh, lob a question at me here, let me take a moment and just brag about a book that you and Lance Ford have coming out soon because you really unpack it. I've been uh, working through this book. It's called The Starfish and the Spirit, basically working off of Ori Brofman's book, The Starfish and the Spider, a leadership model. And you, and, you, and you spend an entire book breaking down how to go from the complex to the simple. I'm about halfway through it, and I'm leading a group of people through it kind of before it comes out. And it is super empowering to the people in this cohort. And uh, I just want to encourage folks, uh, when it, this comes out in March, right? That's right. Yeah. So just yes, a sir. couple of months to go. Uh, if any of this is resonating and you really want to go to the next level on how to break this thing down so that you can start taking bite-sized uh, steps in your own leadership adjustment, you don't have to throw out the whole baby. I don't think the new, next ice age is coming real soon, but um, it takes these incremental steps for us to adjust and to, for the people that we lead to adjust as well. So what a great tool to do that. Okay. Now Thanks, I'm subject bro. to you now that I've mentioned that. <laughs> so... Uh, here's a question. Why is it that church leaders can't see that the prevailing model of church, the complex model, is extra biblical and optional? And, and just even think back in your own life. What was it that maybe kept you from seeing it earlier in your story? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. That, and I don't like it. That's not very easy, Rob. So 
<laughs> if you have another you one, that's a little to, easier. Come up with tough questions, man. <laughs> it's actually it's actually very helpful, and I like the way you put it at the end. Like, what what kept you from seeing it? Because I would call myself a late adapter to these things. Frameworks are critical, especially the ones that you agree to but have no idea, no cognitive type of awareness that you uh, agreed to it. Like one of the biggest things that I see in the church, in the prevailing model church uh, today, is just that framework of the room. Uh, It's one of the things you guys actually talk about in your book. In uh, I think chapter six of that book, you talk about just just look at the room. What does the room communicate? Well, Well, if you've got 200 people facing one way and one person facing another way, you've clearly got a demarcation of the priority of a person. It's like the spirit could really involve himself highly with one and the rest of them need that one. And if you start to think about that, that's just the way I grew up in church. That's the way it's always been. So I don't even challenge that, but it tells me that I need the person up front. So the older I got and the more I read and the more I listened to people that were kind of speaking for a more missional perspective, kind of like we are now, they would say things like, that's more of an Old Testament model. And I would think, no, no, we can't do that. We can't do that. Um, Okay, well, the Old Testament model was you have to go to a priest to get to God. There has to be a mediator. And that mediator has to be human. Now, theologically, everybody's blood should boil. You know, mm-hmm. perhaps uh, a measure of our uh, Roman uh, Catholicism brethren would, would say, okay, we keep maybe a piece of that uh, in our priesthood. Uh, but even, even those brothers and sisters would be railing against, no, we have one mediator. He came, he supersedes, he is the mediator between God and man. There is no person. Well, our structures don't seem to indicate that. That's so true, man. And if, like, seminary is a place for those people to go to get super trained, which is awesome. But it's almost as if the infer- it's almost like a business model in that where I went there, I paid all this money, I took all these risks, I got all this information. Well, that information is my job security. So mm-hmm. I hold on to that information. Mm-hmm. Oh, I, you're meddling. I, I you're am, meddling now. I am. Well, you asked me about personal <laughs> discovery. So this is an indictment. <laughs> This is personal discovery, and so let the chips fall where they may. We're not afraid of these conversations on this podcast. We're inviting people who are trying to explore to find the way into an impervious, let's just call it that, Jesus said it, an impervious Mm -hmm. mode of carrying out the gospel. Why would I want to carry something that I don't have to carry to get the best job done? And so uh, for me, I realized I I was basically a curator and a dispenser of uh, scarce knowledge. And that was how I had my job. And I can remember when I first started to be aware, like, I don't want to hold on to these articles and these insights on my own. I want to make other people stewards of the resources that I read, because how much bigger would the Jesus thing get if it didn't have to go through me? And when other people started reading books like Henri Nouwen's In the Name of Jesus or started to read books like Hugh Halter's Flesh, and people started reading books like Spiritual Leadership by Oswald Sanders. I mean, all the different books that we get people connected to to start to create their own spiritual libraries through our Disciples Made Experiences. All of a sudden, all these people are as on par with me uh, yes. and, 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 and yeah. brighter than me in so many different areas. I still have my role. I still have my specific training. But my training is to be a trainer, not a person who keeps people regularly dependent upon me 
uh, for more and more and more and more training. And so, Rob, it was really kind of hard. Like, why do I not see it? One, because the deals that I've made to agree to this are, are mostly a, a subconscious agreements. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't even know to challenge them until they become vulnerable or someone points them out. So that, I would say, just the overall structure of the meeting room. Mm-hmm. Well, and the other thing you said that I think was very powerful, like when you're getting paid yeah. to be the, the curator and the expert and it's your livelihood, it's very hard to question that. It's yeah. very hard. Yep. Because you, you want to take care of your family and then suddenly if I'm questioning this, I may be delegitimizing my whole career. Right. And I, and I have a lot of empathy. Um, because, you know, the sunk cost is so high. And, and it's one of the reasons I think you're amazing, you know, because you, I mean, your story of really where DM started is you saying, listen, I've got all these graduate degrees. I've been to 50 conferences. I don't know if I've ever actually discipled anybody. It takes a lot of humility to be that far in the game with that much sunk cost and repent. But repentance is the only way forward. And it leads to life. Repentance is turning into the embrace of Jesus. And I just want to, if anyone's feeling the tension of this right now, like just know like repentance is turning into the embrace of Jesus and receiving, what did you say? Impervious life? (laughs) That's what it is. Impervious, yeah. Impervious, Impervious. yes, yeah. Thanks, bro. That's, That's powerful. Yeah. The assumption is that if I move forward in releasing this, I will no longer have a job. That's a Mm -hmm. big fat lie. Hmm. That's a big fat lie. Think about, think back to every person that ever coached you or the best teachers that you had. They, they brought you close and they gave you something that they had. And what Mm -hmm. happened when that happened? Did you look at them and go, Oh good. Now I've got it. Now I'm going to stab you and leave you for dead. (laughs) No, Uh, I mean, that happens. There are people like that. You know, you, you watch this happen in businesses and a lot of businesses try to clinch that, uh, what do we call it, intellectual property uh, mm-hmm. so that we can continue to make a living off of it. Um, Jesus didn't model holding on to heaven and just saying, I'll give you a little bit at a time. He said, I'm going to open the spirit up so that he can do more in you than I can do with you here personally. So he adopted that model of giving it away and he invites us to. And what I have found is the more I give away, the more I get back. I mean, the more loyal people are, the more hardworking people are. I mean, you guys talk a lot about this. Again, I'm going to keep pushing this book, The the Starfish and the Spirit. But you talk about and give so many examples from secular uh, university studies where the more people invite a partnership instead of kind of a paternal relationship with authority, you get more productivity out of people. It's Way an more. absolute inverse on the uh, to the assumption that we make that if we start to let that stuff go. So really encourage folks. All right, Rob, uh, we got uh, two questions left, one to send to you and one for you to send back to me. Let's, let's ramp it up here a little bit. What do you All right, think? What's the, what's the mystery question? <laughs> Another one. I don't know what you're going to ask. This is actually kind of a mirror back to you. What do you think is uh-huh. the number one reason church leaders will not take a step toward this definition of simple that you've laid out? So I've kind of given a piece of that. You have, you and I'm, I'm going to double click on it. Okay. Uh, I think what's underneath all of that is the issue of identity. Hmm. I begin to associate my identity with what I do. And uh, we all do this. I think we go through a journey in Christ. And identity is, if there is like a secret to transformation, it's identity. 
it's number one having your identity uh, your your image of god healed so it actually correlates with who jesus is instead of like who your mom and dad are and what the culture has given to you and weird religious images that you've collected. And once you begin to see who God is through Jesus, then you suddenly realize your sense of who you are is inextricably linked to who you think God is. And so I, I, I just, in my own journey, I had my identity completely attached to what I was doing as a pastor. Like I am a pastor in a particular type of church and we are a leading church. So now I'm a leading pastor and, um, and it's very subtle. It doesn't mean everything you're doing, you're doing for the wrong reasons. It really doesn't, but it means you're, we're all a bag of mixed motives every single day. Right. right. And we need Jesus to straighten it out. And so, um, I think if my identity is wrapped into this is my job and this is what people think of me, according to how I do my job, it's, it almost can feel like an existential threat then to question it. Right. And that's why just one example of that, you know, if you talk to Vanderblumen, we're in this massive transition period where all the boomers who planted these churches and we're in church growth. Um, and if you just sit down and talk to them for 15 minutes, they'll tell you, this is brutal. And one of the main reasons it's brutal is because it's very, these guys have like a death grip on, on what the they pulpit. Because they can't, on what go. they built. Yeah. And we all know numerous stories of people like, I'm going to transition. And then they're on the third person or third try and they haven't transitioned. Hmm. Why is that? We I'm telling you, it's, that. it's not just an organizational problem. Yeah. You know, so identity. Rob, that's when you my said buddy. that, when you said that, I went back. I went back to my story because you don't really see what Jesus is doing in context of your life, particularly when you're younger. Um, identity was such a huge part. Like uh, our seminary pushed hard on that, and even just after it, there was so much of my life that was vulnerable uh, to fear, you know, and so many things. And it was identity. And that whole process, it was like, that was a six or seven year journey of, of transferring my identity from what I could make of my life and what I believed others thought of my life, all that complexity of trying to fashion an ego or an identity and replacing that with Jesus. Um, if it's that big of a deal and that's almost like a prerequisite to being able to make these shifts, like you have to do that work, that soul work before you can do this yes, practical do. work. Yes, uh, you do. Number one resource for people to do that work what's the number one resource for identity stuff Ooh. okay i'll just tell you where the journey started for me a former roman catholic priest named brendan manning and uh so if i and again i wish i had a kickback um on every copy of this book i've sold the last 30 years <laughs> but uh ragamuffin gospel or abba's child man one of those two whichever one seems to resonate more with you the title grab it and go get ready man get ready to get wrecked that's awesome all right you got one yeah, more fun. question all coming right to ready yeah this is a fun one man so you're on this journey yeah from complex to simple it's been amazing to watch and uh that journey's led to your poker table which yes. i love so um you've got a microchurch emerging around your poker table so where do you see this journey taking you 10 years from now where are you going to be in relation to complex forms of church and simple forms of church? 
Well, if if a definition of of church, and I believe our guest, who's our guest next week on this, Brian Sanders, Brian Sanders, who's yes. like one of the pioneering innovators of the simple forms of uh, microchurch uh, from the Tampa Underground. I can't wait for you guys to hear some of the things that he shared, but. I don't think my what I do at the poker table is a full expression of church. There's a, if church is up, in, and out, uh, mm-hmm. we've got the in, but we don't have the up or out yet. It's out for me because the people. I was going to say that's interesting, and I know you're having spiritual conversations on a regular basis. That would be. So the, I think the end, I think yeah. they're there. They're present. Yeah, to some degree, it's a, it's very intentional. It's an environment where I invite folks that do not share. Uh, uh, the faith with me and brothers that do uh, to just be a spot where we can um, just have relationships, build a good reputation, be able to have meaningful conversations that move to uh, some type of confrontation that'll lead to sharing some good news. And that uh, we're in the process and I love it. Where do I see that going? Golly. Well, my poker is getting better. That's for sure. <laughs> because these people are really, really good. Uh, I'm learning a lot more about myself, and I'm learning um, the, how, how meaningful, respectful um, relationships do take a while to involve, particularly um, with people that are, whose backgrounds render kind of a, a not warm disposition to things of faith, but things of us. That's been a huge thing for me to, to, to realize. Where do I see it going? I do see this thing being multiplied out over time. You know, here's some patterns that we learned. Here's some things that we learned. Here's some things where we almost misstepped. Uh, here's some areas where we did misstep. And, and uh, fortunately, uh, God was kind enough to, um, to work in spite of our problems. So basically, I think, I think there could be a number of different poker tables around the country of people doing just what we're doing right now. So it won't be a prescription that we make, but it'll probably be something that there's just a lot more people that want to come play poker than we have room for around our table, particularly in times like this, we keep it really, really small so we can distance out. But uh, once that gets back to normal, I see this thing being able to go crazy. I love it, man. I uh, so respect your commitment to pioneering mission right where you live. And uh, and I just, in closing, to anyone who's listening, you know, I just want to remind you that Jesus said, um, this is the message translation, you know, are you tired? <laughs> Are you, are you needing of rest? You know, come learn the unforced rhythms of grace. And I just want to say, Brian and I get it. We know what it's like to have to lead the complex form of church. And people expect you to be a dynamic communicator, a powerful visionary, a leadership guru, a political commentator, a podcast creator, a marriage counselor, a social activist. I mean, the list goes parenting expert. <laughs> like, it's exhausting. It feels like a thousand pounds. And I just want to remind you today, um, don't take the burden that um, Jesus hasn't given to you. Don't take the yoke that Jesus hasn't given to you. Just let it, let it go. And uh, turn to the embrace of Jesus today and remember you're the beloved and, and see what the Lord has for you next. Like what's your, just the next just the next step towards a, a more primal expression of the church in your life for you. Matthew sixteen eighteen on this rock, I will build my church. That's Jesus. He's saying he'll build it. Mm-hmm. 
just to follow up with what you said there, Rob, so beautiful. Jesus is saying, I'll build it. And if you've kind of put it on your shoulders to build it, come rest, lay that burden down. Because mm-hmm. the kind of church I'm going to build through you, hell doesn't have a chance. So if you are tired, and if you are ready to let Jesus build his church uh, through you, uh, through this type of transition, just remember the encouragement we gave you earlier, the resource, the ragamuffin gospel, let Brennan Manning be a shepherd to your soul. See you next week with Brian Sanders. We hope that what you heard today was an encouragement to you or that it increased your curiosity in making disciples that make disciples. If you'd like to learn more about our experiences or set up a coaching call, you can visit us at disciplesmade.com or email podcast at disciplesmade.com.